every week we as a staff meet and we talk about our ministries uh, for the purpose of improving them. And so this past week, one of the things we did is we went through the list of members here at Bethel and we thought through who might be a valued asset here in the church uh, for one of these ministry teams. And so this week, if you get a phone call or a text message or an email from someone on our staff, just know that it's because they value you. They want to know how you're doing. They want to know if you would be willing to be a part of their ministry team to improve that ministry, to jump on and serve the Lord Jesus in this particular season in your life. So just know that that's coming this this week or the week after, uh, and I encourage you to take that call. Well, I welcome you guests. My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and it's a privilege to, to be with you this morning. It's always an honor to preach God's Word. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was given this ministry opportunity while I was living in Dallas to bring communion into the home of a family on Sunday afternoon. You see, this particular family was not able to leave their home due to the wife's health issues. She had a number of challenges that forced her to miss church every Sunday. Oh, she wanted to be at church. She wanted a fellowship with God's children, and she especially wanted to participate in communion with her brothers and sisters in Christ. But she was not able to, so they created this ministry where someone like myself would come in and bring the communion elements to them. Well, as time went on, my relationship deepened with this family. We developed a bond of trust and The wife and the husband would open up about their struggles, their challenges in life, but most specifically regarding her situation, her health that was failing. The wife has since passed. She's at home with the Lord. I had the the privilege of actually officiating over her, her funeral, or else I wouldn't be sharing with you these details, but I know that she wants to know how God used her. One topic that came up time and time again during our time of meeting once a month in their home over the course of several hours was a longing for her to know her place in the world. What made her significant? What was her purpose? You see, my friend was not old. She was in her 40s. And before illness struck and took away everything she knew life to be, she was in law enforcement. She was good at it and she loved it and it gave her a place and a purpose. But with illness, those things were stripped away from her and she felt lost. What's my place? Where do I fit in God's created order now that I can no longer do what I believe God made me to do? And that's a very good question for all of us this morning. Where do we find our significance? Where do we find our place? It's asked not only by people like my friend who have seemingly no options, 
but it can be asked by someone like myself or by someone like yourselves who have seemingly endless options and opportunities to create significance or purpose for your life. Well, I assured her, just as I hope to assure you this morning, that God has built humanity. He has built mankind for a very specific place and purpose in his order. But often we go looking for our place and purpose as if it's something that we have to establish or create or fight for or hold on to to not lose. We believe it's up to us, and that can create tremendous anxiety, especially if we lose all that we held on to that gave us our place or our purpose. This morning, we are going to dig into Psalm 8, and in Psalm 8, we're going to see God's perspective on the matter of humanity's place and purpose in his created order. Today we're going to kick off our psalm series. So for the remainder of May, this Sunday and the next, through June and July, we're going to be walking through the psalms. It will be under the direction of myself and a team of elders as we have the opportunity to showcase for you Uh, the rich bench, the deep bench we have here at Bethel while Ross is on sabbatical. So it's going to be a team effort, and it'll be a lot of fun, I think, at least for me. So in Psalm 8, we're going to be looking at this question, what's mankind's place and purpose in God's created order? To do this, we're going to break this psalm up into just two main parts. We're going to look at God, then we're going to look at humanity. Read with me verses 1 and 9 of Psalm 8. It's the first and last verse as we look at our first part, God. To the choir master according to the Giddith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth the earth. Did you catch that? This psalm begins and ends with the exact same phrase. This repeated wording actually emphasizes the psalm's theme, which is addressing our very question, mankind's place and purpose in God's humanity. But to understand ourselves properly, we must first understand God properly, who the creator is. So in verses 1 And nine, we see the repetition of Lord, Lord. The one in all caps is Yahweh, the covenant God, emphasizing his loving kindness for his people. But it's the lowercase one that we're going to spend most of our time looking at here. The one capital R and the lowercase O-R-D. In the Hebrew, this is Adon. Now, Adon, when used of God, is a title. To describe him as master. He is the sovereign Lord. This is his creation. To be Lord means he alone is the master. And so we must first grapple with that to understand our place in the master's created order. Continuing with verse 1, we notice that the Lord's majestic name is in all the earth. And his glory 
is set above the heavens. We see some synonyms here. Majesty, glory, these are synonyms for this word name. Name represents God himself, but also his reputation, his revealed glory in all of creation. Now, when I drive to work from from Tyler, I have to do the U-turn to get to church. I'm jealous from time to time of you people from Bullard or White House. You just get to drive straight on into the church. But I I do the U-turn. However, this time of year, I'm the blessed one. I get to do the U-turn, and here's why. Because this time of year, when I slow down and then stop at the U-turn, I get to marvel at God's glory on display in the bar ditch. Now, what do I mean by that? This time of year in the bar ditch, we see lush wildflowers. These wildflowers were created by God to display his majesty, his glory, to teach us who he is his goodness. And so for me, when I gaze at those flowers before coming to work and having to face my to-do list, I'm reminded of his goodness. He's good. This is his church. This is his world. I'm a part of it, and what a privilege that is. But the simple fact that God is revealing himself through creation is not all that these verses are teaching us about who God is. We see in verse 1 here that his majestic name is in all the earth, and he has set his glory above the heavens. So he is simultaneously in creation and above it in the heavenlies. What this is teaching us is that by being in creation, he is near. He is present with us. He is at work sustaining all of creation. The theological term is he's imminent. God is near. He's imminent. Creation is not just a clock he created, wound up, and set off on its own as he walked away. No, he's actively at work in creation, sustaining it. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, while preaching on Mars Hill, said, In God we live and move and have our being. In God we live and move and have our being. God is near. He's imminent. So on the one hand, he's imminent, but on the other hand, He set his glory above the heavens. This tells us he's also separate from creation, independent, far superior to it. The theological term is he's transcendent. He transcends his creation. We may know God truly, but we'll never know him fully. He's beyond our grasp. Now, David in Psalm 8 brought these two realities together. These realities brought together are for our benefit. They're not in conflict. How can God be near and far? Well, he's God. And it's for our benefit that this God 
who is near is actually transcendent. What do I mean? Or read with me in verses 3 through 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Basically what David is saying about God while gazing at God's creation, completely awestruck by the power and beauty of this God, is he saying that the Lord of the universe, the transcendent God who created all things, who has all power, it is this God who is near. It is this God who cares for us. It's not some God like us that's trying to care for us, who says he's mindful of us but can only take that so far. No, it is the transcendent God that we will never fully grasp that cares for us. This is the God who is near. And that brings us peace. The next time you feel anxious or overwhelmed, perhaps by watching the nightly news, look up at the stars. Let them remind you that this transcendent God is the one who cares for you. So far, we've seen that David has explained to us that our creator is the master over his creation. He's simultaneously imminent and transcendent, and that works for our benefit. So what's our place and purpose in this majestic creator's creation? Where does lowly humanity fit in? Read with me verses 5 through 8 as we move to our second point on humanity. Yet you have been made a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea." In these verses, scholars have long seen David echoing Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account. It's there as well as here that we see God's stated purpose and place for humanity. Let's begin with our place. Our place in creation is one of privileged dignity. Privileged dignity as God's image bearers. Humans alone bear God's image. We are endowed with worth and significance, having been created by God. Verse 5, you see this phrase, crowned him with glory and honor, crowned humanity with glory and honor. This explains that humanity as God's image bearers are his kingly representatives on earth. We are crowned with glory and honor. That means we represent the king. 
So that's our place. It's one of dignity. It's to represent God. And all people, all people do that simply because we've been made by God. Theologically speaking, to be made in God's image or to be his kingly representative means humans share in God's nature imperfectly and finitely. We call this communicable attributes. And God has given us a measure of them. For example, life, the capacity to love, your personhood to create or think. These reflect God. So back to our lives, what do I need to do to establish my place in the world? What do I need to accomplish to be significant in this world? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. God gives each person dignity, a privileged place in his created order to represent him. We do not earn it or lose it. But you know what we can do? We can celebrate it. We can celebrate that fact when we feel low or worthless, lost, despised, like we don't measure up. We can celebrate the fact that we are crowned with glory and honor. Something I've not yet mentioned up to this point, but the the type of psalm that we're discussing today, it's called a psalm of praise. Its intended purpose is to lead God's people to praise Him, simply because of the fact that the sovereign Creator has already given us our place, and we don't have to go find it. We can just thank Him and worship Him. We can celebrate the reality of what He's done for us. So what David is urging us to do, what I'm urging you to do, is to set aside any vain attempts to create greatness for yourself, to crown yourself with glory and honor, but to celebrate with thanksgiving and praise what God has already done for you, for every person. So we find an interesting phrase in verse 5 that we've not yet touched on that I want to spend just a little bit of time on. It says... You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Well, what's that mean? Basically, what David is saying is, because of God's placement of man as his image bearer, as his kingly representative, humans, functionally speaking, are closer to God and his heavenly court than to the animal world. We are not just highly evolved animals. We are image bearers of God. So that's our place, image bearers. What's our purpose? What do we do with this other than praise Him? Well, our purpose naturally flows directly from our place. If our place is God's image bearer, His kingly representatives, then our purpose is simply to represent him, to image him, to take that noun into a verb. To image him or to represent him 
has a range of expressions that expands as we move through Scripture, especially into the New Testament. At the very least, all people already image God simply based on the fact that they're people. But as I said, there's a range beyond that. And it revolves around this concept of ruling as his kingly representative. There's some significance to this that washes over us as a democratic nation, but for an ancient Near East mind, they got it. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that. Glancing back at verses 6 through 8, which we've already read, specifically in verse 6, you see this word dominion. Dominion. This is one major expression of humanity's rule as God's image bearer, a major function, how to image him. We exercise dominion over God's created order. So we have the right given by God to use the resources of creation for our benefit. However, because we image God, because we represent God under his lordship, the master, our dominion is to reflect him, his character. That essentially means we are to be good rulers, not self-centered ones. This concept of dominion is to promote life like God. It's to glorify Him in all that we do. How is that going so far for the human race? When you look at the landscape of human society, what do you see? What kind of rule do you see? What kind of exercise of dominion do you see? Do you see the character of God? Or do you see Greed, self-interest. So what happened? If God is so sovereign, and this is what he's decreed for us, why is this not functionally happening? Well, sin, right? We know that. One little verse that we've not yet read but begs to be discussed in light of our discussion is, is verse 2. Verse 2 says... Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Well, what does that have to do with this? What does that have to do with imaging God, ruling? Well, remember that I said Psalm 8 echoes Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account. Well, guess what else it echoes? Genesis 3, the fall. Genesis 3 is the account when mankind under Adam's headship was led to a position of guilt before God because of his rebellion. And Adam and Eve basically forfeited the right to rule. However, God is also Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, loving kindness. And he did not remove from humanity our right to rule or be his image bearers. But he did curse all of creation. His curse is a partial undoing of his blessing. 
If his blessing enables us to promote life and we see order and goodness everywhere we look, his curse is his righteous judgment against creation on account of Adam's rebellion. His curse essentially frustrates humanity's existence as his image bears. By fixing a measured presence of conflict, chaos, and death. Everywhere we look, we see conflict, we see chaos, and we see death. Now, believe it or not, God's curse is actually purely merciful and gracious. How's that so? Well, his curse is an object lesson none of us can escape. That as we live this life, we know things are not okay. Things are just not okay. Something is wrong. And that something is sin. That's our problem. And the solution is the Savior. So the curse is merciful and gracious because it's intended to lead us to the problem, sin, and to the solution, the Savior. Now, I've got a cat, okay, and this cat does need saving, believe me. But with this cat, now I know a lot of you are not cat people, all right, I get that. I like cats, sometimes. But my daughters and my son, they love this cat. So I, I care for the cat. I feed it, I take it to the vet. This is actually me exercising dominion over the cat. And I'm doing it properly. I'm imaging God. I'm displaying God's goodness by caring for the cat, giving it fresh food and water, brushing it, you name it. And if this cat was not under God's curse, it would do as I've attempted to train it to do, okay? Now, I have attempted to train this cat to not claw my furniture, okay? Now, I know what you're thinking. Just take it to the vet and get it declawed. Well, the cat's seven. He lives a lot of his time outdoors, so the vet just wouldn't declaw it. So instead, I've got this sticky tape on my couch that's supposed to deter him from clawing. It works about half the time. Okay, so if you come over to my house and you see sticky tape, just you'll know what, what's up, all right? So the point is, every time this cat rebels against me, the one crowned with glory and honor, the one who has the right to exercise domain, every time this cat defies me because of the curse, what God intends to happen in my heart is not unrighteous anger, but what God intends to happen in my heart is, oh yeah, this curse is still here. I might be saved, but I'm still living in a cursed existence. I need the Savior. I need Him. I still need Him. I need Him every second of the day. Just as we sang that song, oh Lord, I need you. I need you. The curse, even at work in the Christian's life, is designed to point our eyes to our need for the Savior, because we will never perfectly exercise dominion, not even over a cat. Remember when I said that there's a wide range of imaging God? We've talked about that. We 
represent him as image bearers. We do that by simply being human, by exercising dominion. But in the New Testament, this concept of functionally representing God, it takes on a broader meaning with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How we image God expands beyond simply being human or exercising dominion. In Hebrews 2, the author of Hebrews actually quotes our psalm. He does. He quotes it. He quotes it to show us that God has not given up on mankind's quest to properly exercise dominion over the world. He's not taken away from us this right to rule, although it's frustrated presently. In Hebrews 2, the author quotes our psalm to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. He is the ideal and perfect image bearer. He's the God-man who by his righteous life and his substitutionary death, he has made a way to lead us to one day be what God has intended us to be, to do what God has intended us to do. You see, Jesus is what's called the last Adam. Now, as the last Adam, he is establishing a new family, a family that's marked by righteousness, a family that has been transferred from Adam's guilt into eternal life that will one day experience freedom from the curse in its fullest expression. But presently speaking, functionally speaking, as we image God, one of the gifts God gives Christians when you're transferred from the family of Adam to the family of Jesus, God's family, we receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this Holy Spirit gives us a whole new set of desires and a new capacity in His power to image God, to represent God, to glorify God. We enter into this process called progressive sanctification, which another way of describing it is properly imaging God. Not perfectly, not at least, not yet. To rule as God's representative as a Christian takes on a a broader meaning, and it's different than the rest of humanity. As the New Testament authors develop this theology of imaging God, they talk about displaying godliness, displaying Christ-like character. This is how we rule as citizens of God's kingdom in the here and now. The Apostle Paul in Genesis 2.20 succinctly said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Just a couple weeks back, I was in Kenya. First time I'd been to Kenya, we were in Mombasa. I was at a pastor's conference. Wonderful, wonderful time. I was with a group of men. All pastors basically walking them through the book of the book of Mark, showing them that the prosperity gospel, which is plaguing their nation, is a bunch of garbage. And that to follow 
Christ as his disciple means you are to serve, you are to sacrifice, and you are to suffer, which Jesus taught us and modeled for us and daily calls us to do. That's, that's beside the point. But while I was over there, it rained a lot, kind of like here. And the church parking lot was just a, a, a field. It was just grass. I mean, the church itself was just concrete walls and tin roof. But this rain, it, it caused the whole parking lot, the whole field to become a muddy mess. It was chaos. It was disorder. And the men had to lay concrete blocks as a walkway to get from the street to the church without themselves becoming a muddy mess. I took a picture of it, and here's why. Not because I found it interesting, but because it correlated to my own life. You see, right before I left for Kenya, my backyard became a muddy mess. And so I had to lay stone down so that we would simply have a place to hop over the, the water running through my backyard to get to the other parts of the yard. It reminded me, it taught me that this curse that frustrates us, it's present in Kenya, it's present in Tyler, and sometimes in the exact same ways. And while I was watching my brothers navigate this muddy field, not only did it hit me, that we cannot escape this aspect of the curse, whether we're in affluent Tyler or impoverished Kenya. What really hit me is that it's so easy to spend all of our time being frustrated by the curse, all of our resources trying to overcome that aspect of the curse, I'll confess that I've spent too much time daydreaming about what I would like to do to my backyard in order to push back on the curse. I'd love to hire a landscaper, level that thing out, put some drains, add some concrete, get that stone away. Is that wrong? Of course not. It's not wrong at all. But what is wrong is how much time I naturally want to spend trying to create order in my life when God has shown me in his word, but also through my experiences in Kenyan here, that you can't force order back into God's creation that's under a curse. What he calls us to do, rather than exercising dominion, rather than attempting to implement our own version of order, he calls us simply to walk with Christ learning from him, the king, how to properly rule, how to grow like him. So think about in your own life, how much time and energy do you spend trying to push back on God's curse to instill order in the chaos compared to seeking God to grow as his redeemed image bearer, being used by God, to invite others on this quest of knowing the Lord and being made like Him. Here's a few examples. What I mean by forcing order rather than seeking God. Do you spend more time 
praying for your spouse and praying with your spouse or quarreling with your spouse, trying to instill order in your home by changing that person, ruling over them. What about with your kids? Do you spend more time discipling your kid's heart to know and love Jesus for themselves, to experience his goodness in their own life? We're trying to rule over them, force their behavior to change. What about with our temporary abodes, our bodies and our homes? Do you spend more time seeking the majestic and glorious Savior or seeking to make your, your home or your body majestic and glorious, trying to erect your own Eden, if you will? These are things that I'm convicted of in my own life. These are things I simply want to share with you to reflect on. So what's our place in God's creative order? Well, whether you're rich or poor, a shut-in, or a superstar. It's one of privileged dignity as God's image bearer. You're crowned with glory and honor as his representative. What's our purpose? Well, it has a spectrum. Basically, it's to represent him, to image him. All people exercise that purpose, that function simply by breathing, by being born, by being alive, by being created in the womb, whatever you want to call it, being a person you function in exercising that dominion. But it expands to the exercise of dominion over the created order. And then finally in Christ, it's reflecting back to God the character of his son in all that you do. So I want to leave you with a version of a prayer that was taught to me by a man I highly respect. Every morning before your feet hit the ground, pray, Father, at the end of this day, when you look at me, may you see your son and not a string of good deeds I accomplished apart from you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through your son, our Lord, our Savior who will lead us, who is leading us to one day be free completely from the curse and from sin, being enabled to rule perfectly. But until that day, Lord, help us to press in to him, to learn how to image you properly, to love you, to love others to live in accord with your word, to share your word with others, to invite others on this journey of imaging you. Thank you that you do all the work and we're called to respond in faithful obedience. I pray that you would stir up in each of us a desire to seek you, to talk with you, to hear from you through the reading of your word. Thank you that you're near and that you care for us. Thank you also that you're mighty and that your farness does not mean we cannot reach out 
and touch you, but it does mean you're great beyond our capacity to know. And that that's for our good, to be aware of that. Bless us as your people, Lord. We love you and we thank you for your son. In his name we pray, amen.